In the late summer of this year, my father passed away, in shock to most everyone. In the aftermath of this tragedy, I wrote this story. This is not an autobiographical account, nor is it a depiction of my own relationship, but it was inspired to whatever degree. It's been difficult to get this done, but now it is. Rest easy. How to speak to the dead while you sleep. One. Analog. The man in the photograph wasn't in my memory. Through the window of the old Polaroid I held in the margin between my thumb and forefinger, I saw my mother, young and filled with energetic vibrancy. She stood leaning against a brick wall of what I could only assume was an education building, inferring from the bright turquoise book bag leaning against her calves on the overgrown yard. To her left and in the background, a bright but cloudy sky threatened to blot out the rest of the image, but her wide, gleaming smile seemed to outshine the overexposed heavens. But there, along with my mother and with his arm around her shoulders, was a man with a leather jacket, hair slicked back tight, and those obnoxious trailer trash biker sunglasses that appeared to me oddly out of place in an aged Polaroid. Through the heavy thunder that had been my auditory companion through the last several hours, I heard what I thought might have been a ringtone. I was skeptical of this, however, because through the white noise of the storm, I had thought to have heard many things, like the honking of horns outside, some strange clicking and beeping, and the aforementioned ringtone familiarly set as the default on my cell phone. I regretfully wandered through the dark hallway into the family room, where I had left my cell phone on the kitchen bar. A sudden jolt of adrenaline shot through my nerves as my pupils focused on the torch of light shining out like a beacon against the shadows of the polished hardwood countertop. An unfamiliar number pumped another jolt of adrenaline through, but seeing it was an area code local to the area, I decided to answer hesitantly. I abhor scam calls. Hello? I spoke sternly into the device to make up for my hesitancy. First, nothing. And then, a sporadic crackling. And then, from the other end, Hugh, it's your mother. Can you hear me? Though I told her repeatedly in the previous day that I didn't go by that name anymore, I suppose then wasn't the time to wander into that labyrinth that's proven relatively pointless so far. Yeah, I can hear you. Oh good. I've been trying to call for an hour now, but this storm's wiped the reception out on my phone. I'm on your aunt's right now. Hers is a bit better than mine. But the road out of the neighborhood is flooded, and we heard on the radio that Main Street is backed up too. I think I'm going to be staying here tonight. I found myself staring at the photo as silence began to seep into the air. Is that alright, Huey? Yeah, uh, that's fine. You know I've been sleeping alone for years now, Mom. I'm not a child. 
Silence went the other way this time. Right. Finally came from the other end in a solemn tone. I suppose that's right. It took but a moment for regret to start its entry. In a moment of catch-up realization, I felt the sadness not just at the reaffirmation of her boy's long-lost childhood and dependency, but at the newly unearthed loneliness, long forgotten but wretchedly familiar, in the sudden death of her husband, my father. I love you, Ma, I muttered out in what I immediately after felt a pathetic attempt at compensation. How are you feeling? Oh, fine. Fine for the circumstances. Your aunt is helping keep my mind on the good times and off the... Well, you know. I'll be fine. With God and time. How are you holding up? I'm doing fine. Say, Mom, I've been going through one of the old boxes you showed me of some old photographs. Do you know where that one of us by the mountains is? From that vacation we went on when I was a boy? Oh, I'm sure it's in there somewhere. She said, as I heard some laughing in the background behind her crackling voice. Perhaps the television set turned up a little too loud somewhere in the house. I found myself again staring into the eyes of the man in my mother's photograph. I found this photograph of you when you were really young, like maybe 16. You have that blue book bag and I think you're in front of a high school. She interjected. Oh, that old one with your father? I found myself shaking my head into the phone. No, this guy, his hair is slicked back and he's wearing this leather jacket. He's got a bit of a beard. Huey, that's your father. That's how he dressed when we were dating. No. I burst out in a laugh, looking back down in discrimination of the photograph. That's dad? Really? Oh yes, that's your father alright. He was quite the character back then. Hard to imagine. I whispered out after staring at the photograph long enough for my smile to turn to a reticent frown. We seemed to share a moment of mutual silence and understanding. Are you sure you're alright, Huey? I slid the photo onto the countertop as I rotated around in the bar chair to stare deeper into the depths of the blackened abyss of the unlit hallway. I'm fine, Ma. You just get some rest and stay safe. I'm not going to be leaving, so I'll be fine. Saw we're pretty stocked up on frozen pizza pockets, so they might be gone by the time you get back. A heavy giggle, singular but full, belted through the speaker. Well, I might just have to stop by the grocery on my way back then. I'll talk to you tomorrow, Huey. I love you. I said goodnight and hung up the phone. My eyes wandered back to the hallway. I couldn't see through the blackness, but could see clearly in fantasy of my imagination, as it was when I was a child. Before my mind's eye, I witnessed the blindingly fresh, bright baby blue of the newly painted drywall I found myself soaking in so often as the backdrop of the adventures I'd spend with my toys and trading cards. 
In a moment, the vibrancy faded away into the darkness. I grabbed the photo from the counter and retreated back into the shadow, back into my parents' newly my mother's sole bedroom, to the open shoebox sat next to the photo spread out across the quilted bedspread. I put the old image of my parents back in the box with the others and slid it back into the closet. On top of four other boxes, my mother told me housed home photos and keepsakes. An adventure for another time, I had come to the conclusion. Two. Digital. Thunder rattled the house as I sunk into the old wooden rocking chair. I'd had a mini panic attack this morning when I realized I didn't see it. But a check of the basement turned it up, sure enough. I didn't think Dad would have gotten rid of it. I lugged it up the wooden staircase that worriedly seemed a little plush in a couple spots and sat it right in front of the computer table my parents used to check emails and the weather and whatever else they cared to venture to. As could most likely go without saying, my parents weren't a part of the internet generation, and they were fairly proud of it. I instinctively looked to my left, out of the window embedded in the wall just to my side. Through the glass panes, I gazed across the setting sun making its horizon the best it could above the forest trees that made up the familiar landscape of my childhood backyard. Rain poured like hell, and I thought it a miracle I could actually make out the vision so clearly in such a state of heavenly turmoil. I just sat there for a moment, really taking in the beautiful sight, with the soothing sound of the steady rain as my friend and leaned into the grooves of the chair. The chair was old, and wooden, but it was affixed with a couple of cushions that made it so comfortable, falling asleep in that family heirloom seemed very likely in that moment. But then I noticed the chimney. It was sticking out and above the tree line, somewhere behind and in the distance, its stalk lost between the trees and with the consumption of the sight paired with it the recovered memory. How I had forgotten such a steady fixture to my childhood imagery, I'm not sure, but what I had lost, I had now regained. I noticed the old chimney when I was very young, no more than four years old, I'm sure, sticking out bright above the trees. The red bricks, though decrepit and chipped, stood out brightly in contrast against the light blue sky and the bright spring sun. It was a rectangular chimney, shrinking slightly as it ascended, with a slightly thicker rim at the top. About a fourth of the bricks were missing, and many of the others seemed to be in crumbling decay or had been otherwise crushed on some occasion by something. I remember asking my parents about it once. My dad, actually. What's that? I asked, while pointing up fairly high into the sky with my tiny height at the time. It's a chimney, son, I heard from behind. Of an old, old house that's very dangerous. Don't ever go farther into the forest than we can see from the house, 
and never to that old house. Okay, Huey? By then I was face to face with my dad, who had knelt down to my level. How is it dangerous? I asked in genuine curiosity. My dad was serious. I could tell by the look in his eyes. I was nervous. It's falling apart, Huey. See those missing bricks? They could come falling down on you, or one of the molding and decomposing floorboards could fall through, and you'd get trapped down in the basement after breaking your leg on the concrete floor. How would we ever hear you, Huey? He had me scared, which to a father like him was success. I never did venture out to the old house. On one occasion, when I was a teenager and was hanging out in the forest with my friends, I got pretty close. We found an old mailbox among the overgrowth that was partially tipped over and sunken into the earth. When I looked into the distance, I could see through an opening in the leaves the top story of an astonishingly old-looking house. Its once white paint was faded in large streaks to solid black, now with only specks of its former coat. I could see a single window that, interestingly, seemed to have its drapes closed. I wanted to check it out, no longer afraid given the fact that I was no longer freshly out of toddlerhood and newly into the pseudo-invincibility of teenagehood. But we ran into an obvious problem. The overgrowth was thick, intertwined, woody, and thorned in the obvious path forward, and seemingly a good circumference around. It was an easy thing to say, screw it, and decide to start heading back towards the house, to see if my dad was back with the beer. It wasn't for us, and he didn't let us have it, but sometimes I could sneak some out for us without him knowing. Usually, though, that would entail us splitting one or two between the three of us, which obviously did little but give me a slight upset stomach. My mom planned to take care of most of my dad's funeral planning, and in all honesty I didn't offer up like perhaps I should have, and in a serious way I thought I might detract more than I would add. However, my mother did task me with finding a tombstone artist, someone who would provide the stone and the engraving at a reasonable cost, something less than the extortionate prices at the funeral home. I wasn't sure I could find anything, but I told her I'd look and that men looking at the online classified ads. Their internet was slow and Craigslist wasn't caring to load, so I got up to check the refrigerator for something cold while giving it a chance to find the connection. There was still another bottle of root beer in there, so I grabbed it and started making my way back to the computer. I sat down in the chair to be greeted with the same full white page and a little loading rotation. I rocked a little. Does this root beer have any caffeine? I turned over the bottle and scanned to the bottom of the nutritional chart. Didn't say. I decided to take it a little slow for the night and took a sip. For whatever reason, though the loading time was heavily slowed, I could eventually get something to come through on the general search engine. So, I searched for tombstones for sale in my area. After about ten minutes, the results finally loaded, 
and I had regretfully made it about halfway through the drink. I didn't even remember unscrewing the cap. I sat the plastic bottle down on the wooden surface, and after a moment, scooted it a bit further away. Given the extremely bad connection, I wanted to be careful with what I clicked on. I scanned the first page. Most of the results were from funeral homes I know Mom had already scoffed at. I clicked on something that looked like some kind of classified ad, and after an only five minute load time, I was proven correct. But really, the guy's prices were worse than the homes. He specialized in these brightly colored holographic crystalline tombstone platings. It wasn't meant to be. I called the task at hand a lost cause, for at least as long as the internet was dragging along at a snail's pace. Such an emotionally stimulating task wasn't meant for shitty internet connection. But I did happen to find myself on a classifieds website that looked straight out of the late 90s, which meant slightly faster loading times. I looked to my right. After taking in the inky nothing, punctuated by spotlights of two lamps that illuminated the couch and closed curtains of the living room window, soaking in the ever-present rattling from outside, I decided to stay on the website and see if I could entertain myself for any length of time before checking the basement for some long-lost or hidden wine for the fifth time and turning into the couch for the night. The homepage loaded pretty quickly. There weren't many categories. I checked the antique section of the website, but there were only a few posts within the last year, and no pictures. I looked at the Rants Here page, and found the usual religious and right-wing nuts primarily. Nothing very interesting. I was about to end the effort when I found myself accidentally clicking as I moved my mouse across the homepage of the website. I had incidentally clicked on a category apparently titled, The End, and was greeted to a page with several posts, all of which had titles that were composed of either pure gibberish, or some language composed of Latin characters I had never seen before. All of the posts were like this, except for one. Three, hidden. The title, The Choice to Look the Other Way and Move Along, in English letters popped out at me against the static all around, with a timestamp dated to two weeks past. Thunder rattled the furniture from outside, and the living room lamps dimmed for just a second before coming back to full strength like its failure was never there at all. I clicked on the link and leaned back in the chair as I waited for the inevitable loading time to get through itself. I turned my head to the left. Darkness was most of what I could see out of the window at this hour. Sporadic lightning added novelty to the archaic television, but it could only hold my modern attention for so long. When I turned my head back, I hesitated for a moment in the realization that the page had loaded in a time much quicker than two minutes. 
I smiled at the thought of the internet's strength improving, and leaned forward to begin reading the post. Everything changed this year. Uh, with the passing of my father last spring, I felt like a living shadow in the time since. Not immense pain, and not immense grief, but a strong feeling of disconnection began working its way into my being. The moment I got the news, and it completed its task in a matter of moments. I don't know what to think. I hadn't spoken to him in years at that point, and... The details of our fractured relationship aren't worth smearing all over the recesses of the internet. A soul deserves to rest. But last night, though the context was none the different to any other night, I was greeted at some point in the early morning by a vision in a dream. I'm looking outside of my old childhood window at the full moon peeking out from between two wispy clouds I know my grandmother would have labeled spooky. I know it's the last night in this house, before packing up the last of our belongings and moving on to the new house mom and dad had been talking about. I feel like a toddler. A sudden creaking from behind sends me swinging around to see my father having just entered my barren room. A single mattress sits on the floor. My dad looks me in the eyes, and in a moment of visible horror projected across his facial muscles, he shrieks, Who told you you could use my video camera? And in a flash I realize that my point of view isn't through my eyes but it is as though I am watching a VHS projected on a thousand-inch television set. I didn't say a word, and continued watching myself stare through the lens of the camera at my father. After a moment, his scornful expression began to soften, and after sitting cross-legged on the floor in front of me, said, All right, you can use it tonight. Just tonight. My father looks towards the window I had just been gazing from. I keep him loosely in the shot through my horrible child camera work as he scoots over toward the window. Ah, oh, that's a beautiful moon out there tonight. Beautiful work of God's creation. I go back to looking at our Luna now with the silent companionship of my father. A chunk of time passes. A slight drizzle of rain begins outside, and just after the sound of a distant thunder, my father says lightly, I just remembered the last thing my father ever told me. I didn't feel much as I stared at our moon and listened to my dad in a mostly disconnected manner. We were in the backyard, sat around the old campfire. My dad began. 
fireflies mixing with the floating embers, and my old man told me to look up at the moon, and it was full just like tonight, and, and he told me that if you stare up at the full moon with the knowledge and full conviction in your heart that you will be visited by a loved one who has passed that night while you sleep, it will happen. I didn't know what he meant, and I think I said something that alarmed him, because he suddenly went, No! This visit isn't of the flesh! And he went on to explain that the communion would occur in a dream that night, or a night soon after. But if the visit was to occur on a different night, the same ritual should be carried out. He also noted that a crescent moon in any stage could work as well, but that its energy was most powerful when full. He strongly acquired my attention when he spoke the sentence. You must understand my words, son, or there will come a day soon when I can comfort you no more. I looked away from the moon and into his eyes. His brows were furrowed straight in a look of stern direction, but I noticed a watery shine in the reflection of his eyes. A slight frown punctured the sides of his lips. There was a moment of pure understanding. Look up to our moon, he spoke. And I did as he said. He then went on to instruct. When you wish to connect with the one who has passed to the other side, you must lock eyes with Luna and know in your heart that it knows what you know. It feels what you feel. The moon has direct experience of your thoughts and your will. Tell yourself in your mind that the moon is listening and waiting. Say to the moon, my loved one will be with me tonight, and imagine the look on their face the moment you see them. See their eyes perk up and their smile widen. See a warm, familial embrace. Feel as much as you can within your internal senses the events you know to transpire, and know that Luna is hearing your prayer. Hold this image as long as you can, my son, as long as your will can manage. And when distraction and strain become too much, close your eyes and know that Luna knows and that the desired event will transpire without a doubt. After a few seconds, proceed with your bedtime routine. My father had me go through the motions of the practice, and then after a while we put out the fire and went inside. I haven't thought about that day since... My father pauses mid-sentence from his monologue and looks down from the moon. Then he finishes with, What a silly thing. Spoken dryly and with a frustrated tone. By now, the camera is locked onto my father, and as he begins to turn around toward me, I suddenly wake up from the dream. I found I had perspired through my clothes with a heart rate going quite fast. I sat up in bed and turned on the lamp to ground me and take me out of it a little quicker. 
I then began to think about the dream. And as I went over the events in my mind, there was a strange sensation in the back of my skull, almost like a physical manifestation of a knowing I wasn't quite in on yet. And then, like a baseball bat smashed against the skull, I realized the scene that had played out in my dream was stunningly familiar and nostalgic, that I could actually recall to a certain degree bits and pieces of that evening before my dad caught me with the camera. I remember I found it on the floor in the living room, right by a stack of books that seemed gigantic at the time. And as I came to this realization, and worked it around in my mind more, the realization suddenly hit me that if this was truly more than a dream, then there would reasonably be the VHS tape somewhere that captured the events as they unfolded. My father always had that camera around, and despite his problems, loved capturing family birthdays and holidays, so it wasn't unreasonable to expect a possibility. When I went over to my mom's house that day to help her sort some things, I asked her about the old tub of VHS's dad always had. She pointed me towards the basement, and after digging around a while, I found it. It took me another little while to find a working VHS player among the pile of ancient electronics I couldn't believe were still there, and hooked it up in the living room. I started looking at marker-scrawled titles on the sides of these tapes. Anything that appeared to be past my fifth birthday I decided to ignore entirely, which left me with about 17 tapes. I put one in and began fast-forwarding to see if any moons or barren houses popped out. But one after the other after the other proved pointless. Lots of interesting memories, but not as interesting as the one I was looking for. When I asked mom about it, she had no idea what I was talking about. I decided to describe it to her a bit more, but she denied it even more emphatically, saying my father never knew his dad. She told me this in a tone that seemed almost offended, like I implied that she didn't know her husband as well as she thought. I decided to drop the subject. The dream or memory or dream memory has been at the forefront of my mind all day today. And I've been going through over and over and over again the instructions given to my father by his father. If we are to suppose it was only a dream, the instructions certainly seemed oddly practical and straightforward, if not logical. I couldn't imagine the technique to be valid, but it was so strange. I never even contemplated such a strange idea, not at least since childhood. But the possibility is enticing for the obvious reasons, especially with the recent tragedy of my father. But as I looked out at the setting sun tonight while I began to write up this post, I realized that I'm just not ready. I'm not prepared for the emotional stress that would come raining down on me with the effort used to turn back time. And if it didn't work, when it didn't work, I wouldn't be left eternally drained. 
If I ever play with the technique described by my father in my dream, it will be a night many years from now. But as I feel at the moment, I'm pretty sure such a communion simply isn't meant for this lifetime. It is time to rest and move on. And if you made it to the end of this post, thank you for allowing me to vent to you. Four. Portal. By the time my eyes made it to the end of the last sentence, my root beer was gone. I was in a state of hesitant shock at the strange nature of the post, wondering how serious I should take it as a testament of genuine occurrence. But before the shock came the intrigue. The happenstance wandering into the writings of a man currently in a similar situation to me was comforting, albeit in a still distant way. The clapping of thunder roared through the forest and into the house. The house creaked in such a way that a rush of genuine fear came over me, like I might not have more than a second to get out before the 19th century architecture collapsed. But after a moment of frozen suspense, Nothing seemed to fall apart. I relaxed my neck against the crevice of the pillow, which gently rolled my head to the left, leading my gaze back out of the window. In looking out, I saw standing up and to the left of the forest-fogged chimney framed like a masterpiece in my window frame, hung like a radiant crystalline pearl in our sky, the moon. It was full and reflected light from our sun to such a brilliant extent, I could actually make out the slightest details and general outlines of the bed of foliage at the forest top horizon, in the most ghostly outline of the chimney, dead and decaying, long unknown and forgotten, sticking out, threatening to be recognized out of the abyss it had called. It was while staring at the beautiful white disc in the sky that my mind slid back to the online post I had just read, into the strange supposed teaching from a long-lost memory in a dream. I wondered, just wondered, how the mechanics of such a physics-breaking path could yield fruit, I wasn't sure, but in that moment, Still inflamed by the lingering sick of my father's passing, it felt attractive. But a moment self-questioning on what I would even have to say to my father, given a nocturnal visit, gave me more pause. Similarly again to the guy in the post, I had a fractured relationship with my patriarch. It wasn't what either of us wanted, but we were very different people. We saw things in very different ways. We had a mutual affection for each other, but that affection was restrained by the repelling magnetic force of the half-forgotten past. I came out of my train of thought, still gazing at our moon. In this moment of noticing, a silence fell over me that still held room for the thundering rainstorm outside. 
and a feeling as though my mother just peeked over the side of my crib to comfort my infantile cries crept over me, and I knew, without thought, that somehow I wasn't alone. And this silent presence was comforting and associated strongly with my locked gaze to the moon. In an instant of decision-making, I decided to not snap out of my trance, and instead lean further into the unfurling catacombs of peculiar sensation. I spoke out loud, I will meet my father tonight in a dream, and then focused back into the blinding wide of our heavenly satellite. Imagination began of its own accord as I saw him as he was when I last knew him many years ago. When that image proved difficult, he suddenly transitioned to an appearance as he was when I was a boy, and I saw the gleam of joy in his eyes, and I remembered what it felt like to be in his arms. And I spoke again, this time only in my mind, I will meet my father tonight in a dream. The surface of the moon seemed to brighten and somehow come into focus even more before the edges and outlines of the circumference and various craters began to move ever so slightly, in a way so that they didn't move at all. And after a few more moments, I suddenly noticed a feeling as though the wind had been knocked out of me, at the same time as outside thoughts began rushing in. The unpleasant sensation could have spurred on the cessation of the trance, but I am unsure. Somewhat disoriented by the experience, aided by the flood of associated negative memories of my father, I absentmindedly exited out of the internet browser, powered off the computer, and threw the now empty plastic bottle in the trash on my way to the couch. The rain was continuing to pound against the house from seemingly all sides, but I found it easier to sleep with the natural white noise, with the lamps off and a blanket tossed over my legs, I leaned my head into the far armrest of the couch and gazed down past my feet, past the wall, through the window, at that beautiful full moon as my eyes began to close. Five. Trail. I made it no more than an hour into the night before my eyes crested into the darkened space around me. My throat was a little dry. Not so quenched that I was holding back a choke, but it was irritating enough to wake me. I sat up on the side of the couch and, looking up before me, on the coffee table, sat a tall glass of water filled to the brim with a couple of ice cubes floating near the surface. My first instinct was a reactive laugh, followed by a look over both of my shoulders. I had no recollection of pouring myself a glass, let alone getting ice out so recently as to let it retain its molded shape. It was as I stared down at the ice that I noticed a crystalline gleam of bright violet shining brightly through a chasm in the clear of the cube. Suddenly, arising out of the darkness to my left, on the floor, 
was a shaft of purple light, laid out over the floor like a roll of carpet, expanding in thickness towards its source, towards the window by the computer on the table. I found myself staring through the window at the aerial ocean of bright purplish pink prickled with points of silver clouds that gleamed like stars in the alien sky. I stood up slowly as though I had to be careful, and after a moment's hesitation to reassure myself of the bizarre situation, I started walking towards the window. I'm sure my face glowed a bright neon violet as I scooted up in the old rocking chair, poking my head out of the window that was no longer restricted by a glass pane. Above and before me was painted the wonderful side just as it had looked from the couch, though ever expanded. Now closer, I noticed the moon still levitated in the sky, though it appeared twice its normal size. This led my gaze straight to the forest's familiar horizon. And how familiar it was. It took a moment for my senses to meet up with my memory, but after a short time of confusion, the vibrant green trees came into focus, and I realized that not only had the rain stopped pouring, but the scene was not from this age. As I peered out into the earthly bottom half of my backyard, I didn't notice the overgrown soggy emptiness that made up the land up into the forest edge I had seen the night before, but a freshly mowed, deep but lively gradient of green grass. One of those plastic two-foot toddler slides, blue and white, sat about ten feet from the forest edge, and I noticed a scattering of what looked like undescript action figures and bouncy balls. I tilted my head all around, scanning the area for another soul. I was alone. I looked back to the forest edge, suddenly noticing a small portion of thinning foliage. I had never noticed such a feature before, and as I focused on and pondered the sight, I suddenly heard soft, small thudding of crushed grass. I looked down to find myself walking across the cut grass, almost to the forest edge. And there, much closer, it was clear that what I had noticed wasn't a trick of perspective. The trees of this forest were old and thick and dense, though in this one little area, measuring across no more than two feet, no trees or large plants of any kind found their dwelling. Only easily brushed aside and hollow weeds filled out the area immediately before me, which I discovered by using my shoes as my guide and stepping slowly and carefully about two feet into the forest. But as I continued inching my way in, crushing spindly plant after thorny vine with every step, bright purple rays of deep light cutting through the green foliage, I realized the wooden vacancy didn't stop. I continued inching my way deeper into the forest, and after a few minutes, I realized I had stumbled upon a long-lost walking path. What its purpose initially was, I knew instinctively, time had entirely forgotten. But I felt an immense primal curiosity to see out its revivification, if only momentarily. So, 
I kept inching along. The light blinding through the ever-intertwined branches and leaves towered above provided enough to guide my way. After what felt like no more than two minutes had passed, I glanced back to see a never-ending path running away from me at an infinite pace towards the world's end, the scene appearing like a rectangular path cut out of stone deep into the earth from the forest foliage, leading ever infinitely in the final darkness. My stomach suddenly caught in my throat. I turned back around and faced the trees. The innate knowing that I had to keep moving forward flowed certainly through my veins, and it was so. I soon came upon what appeared to be a fork in the path. Immediately before me, the path seemed to widen to twice its initial size, however punctuated by a large oak directly in the center. I placed my palm on the rugged bark and leaned around to confirm my suspicion that many trees continued on past the first, seeming to take one unclaimed path to one place, and another to another. I looked to the left before me and then to the right, and in a moment of blind decision-making, I picked the right path. I was about fifteen feet down the right forked path in the road when I was startled suddenly by a shouting from behind me. Huey! I heard like a thunderbolt straight into my eardrum. Coming from the strange silence that had been my company since the house, I instinctively ducked for cover before carefully turning around to notice a great opening in the foliage of the ancient trees around me, up, over, and past the other fork in the road, and revealing to me the old abandoned house whose chimney had been a staple of my childhood landscape. As I stared at the house through the clearing in the foliage, and just as I remembered ending up here once before as a teenager, I suddenly witnessed something white fly out from between the curtains of the open upstairs window and shoot straight into the air. It did wonderful loop-de-loops and spirals in a manner I felt was almost joyous, before it picked up speed and darted straight for me through the clearing and the leaves. I instinctively dropped to the forest floor, feeling the wind from the object shoot by the top of my head. After a frozen moment, I uncovered the back of my head and looked behind me. Stuck in the burrowed hole of a woodpecker in an old oak held wedged a long, silver-lined paper airplane. I wasted no time in grabbing it out and unfurling the folds. I found words of English. Quote, Wrong way. Unquote. It took no more than ten minutes after finding myself back to the fork in the road to make my way down the path to the left, towards the long-abandoned house. I stepped across large, hollow-stemmed daisies that released a crackling snap and a smoky wisp of indigo as I found myself suddenly staring out into an open clearing of grass. It was like it had been recently mowed, just like my parents' backyard. There were stones of various sizes and shapes, though, all with soft edges, 
that had been laid out as a path towards and connecting to the three steps that led to the front door of the long-lost two-story. It looked in remarkably good shape, though somewhat rough. Paint had begun to chip, but it was then that I noticed the chimney wasn't falling apart. In fact, obsidian black smoke billowed out from the chimney, like thick, viscous bubbles barreling through the ocean towards its reconnection with the atmosphere. I began to slowly walk the stone path towards the front door, looking around to soak in as much of my surroundings as I could along the way. It was a short walk, but it wasn't varied. The circumference of trees encased the grounds all around, save for the small opening I had rediscovered. On each side of the steps a short way from the front door were planted these beautiful green leafy bushes that ordained these relatively gigantic white flowers that smelled of an almost hellishly delightful perfume so intense I was dazzled simply from the short walk up the stoop. And then, just as my hand made its way up to knock against the polished wood, the entrance opened of its own accord. Six. Revelation. Jiminy Christmas, you're late! He half spat onto the floor as he dashed quickly away from me, deeper into the shadows of the house. I saw him for barely quarter of a second before he was gone. I was momentarily paralyzed by confusion and an eerie sinking feeling in my gut, before taking a slow step reaching the boundary through the doorway between the front outside deck and the deep, dark hardwood floor that matched and polished the immaculate front door. The first moments inside, I could see hardly anything. Shadows slid and morphed in my periphery. But then, after about three seconds, and lasting another seven, the brightness of the room slowly rose in intensity, like someone took a light switch slider and slowly slid the dial from one side of the scale to the other in an even-paced movement. However, there were no light bulbs in sight. Only a small fireplace in the far right-hand corner of the house ablaze with a few logs and four small, scattered windows. None of them had shades or blinds of any kind. I turned my gaze to the left to see the person who had let me into the house curled over a medium-sized wooden bucket, holding what I thought at first was a gigantic, raw Thanksgiving turkey. I was looking at the top of his shiny bald head as he struggled with the deceased beast in a violent headlock. But as I began to walk towards him, I realized it wasn't a bird at all. It was a very large, ovular-shaped thing that looked slippery to the touch, this man's hands barely able to lock around the object. Its color was a light pink streaked with red. The longer I looked, the worse the feeling in my stomach got this time morphing into blunt nausea. I felt something clench in my gut, and I suddenly found myself clasping onto the wooden backrest of a chair I hadn't noticed beside me. Christ, what the hell is that? I couldn't help but mutter out as I tried to fight back a gagging sensation in my throat. 
Before I could even take my next breath, the man's head cranked up nearly 180 degrees erect to lock eyes with mine as he shrieked, The devil does not speak in this house! Staring into those irate, bloodshot eyes, I could no longer suppress the knowledge of who stood before me. There was no doubt in my mind that in that moment, I bore into the eyes of my father, more or less as he was when I last saw him. His bony face was gaunt and large, bushy gray eyebrows scrunched into his enraged eyes. He wore a male-patterned baldness ring of hair around his head, from just above his earline all the way around, and a thick, voluminous gray beard hung down to nearly his chest. He wore what appeared to me to be a black rope, that would appear at times more like a thin black blanket draped over his shoulders and wrapped around his frame. I'll tell him the next time I hear him. I instinctively reacted, taking myself by surprise. It seemed like a remark I would have shot back immediately as a teenager, but not as a man in his twenties. The fire doubled in size behind his eyes, and he dropped the putrid object into the bucket, which, due to its size, was more like setting it on top of the bucket, and he corrected his hunched posture. You took the name of our lord in vain and cursed your tongue. Don't be so foolish. He grabbed the large bucket by a much larger handle and walked over to the fireplace. The shock of the situation seemed to distract from my nausea, and I watched as my father labored the strange, gooey, egg-like object over to the corner, placing it directly in front of the fireplace. I walked over to a wooden rocking chair, sat catty corner to the fireplace, about 12 feet away, and sat on its cushion. My father scooted a wooden stool over to the bucket and sat down. He then grabbed a length of metal chain hung to the wall with a nail to his left, and holding it firm in both hands, flung the slack around to the other side of the large slippery object, and then tipping the bucket that held and stabilized the thing ever so carefully with the tip of his wooden sandal, leaned the moist boulder-like object just barely into the fire. The tip was about 75 degrees. I sat in silence as he held the ovular object in place with the chain. As I rocked in the chair, I looked around. From the inside, it appeared almost like a log cabin. The walls appeared to be made of wooden logs, along with the floor, and there was no TV or radio. The only electric power device I spotted was the refrigerator he stood in front of when he was in the kitchen. He didn't even have a sink. I noticed while looking around that, just outside one of the back-facing windows, was what looked like an old stone water well. The large, smooth, gray stones that made up the architecture appeared very similar to the ones used to pave the path to the door, as well as the ones used to construct the fireplace. After a few minutes, he very slowly rotated the large egg-shaped thing with the chain about 45 degrees around, and then quickly yanked the chain back into its original place to leave the object in its new position. The roasted surface facing my direction I could see that the once pink and gooey surface had now turned a pale, off-white color with streaks of charcoal where the red used to be. 
and its surface seemed to be cracked and split in various connected paths like a shattered windshield. The roasting continued. My eyes settled on the burning embers just below and to the side of the strange object. And in the flames, my mind wandered and was brought to a lucidity of the situation at hand. Staring into the chaotic light, I could feel the familiar and familial presence of my father just before me, connected with an intense nostalgia radiating from a thousand memories flashing before my eyes. The feeling began to form that now was the time, that this was it. Though what it was, wasn't logically worked out in my mind or clear to me in an unambiguous way, the gravity of the moment weighed on me in the presence of my father, who recently made a trip I didn't expect to hear back from. From these realizations came suddenly a stoic anger. In a moment, the images made the jump from fishing trips and long summer days to my teenage years and the reality of what I tried hard to not know. And watching the pain well up before me, I tightened my grip on the armrest of my wooden rocker. The fact that we had never spoken of the problem suddenly felt substantial, and the feeling of, this is it, returned. I felt myself continuing to well up with anger, before suddenly striking my gaze from the fire and straight towards the eyes of my father, who stared between his strange project and the fire alternatively. But the moment after locking onto his eyes, they slipped past his shoulder to a framed photo sitting atop a shelf made up of no more than a single wooden plank nailed to the wall. And suddenly, I could make out the photo with stunning vividness, as though it had been brought just before my eyes. It was a photo of my father and my mother. They stood together, bundled up in winter coats and beanies, huddled in a mound of snow, with large blizzard-stricken mountains behind. And they were young about how I remembered them to be when I was no older than seven. Seeing my mom in such old family relics was always nice, but seeing my dad didn't tend to be. But here, in this photo, there was something about him. Though through his hat I couldn't tell, I imagined he hadn't yet lost his hair, and there was a strange perkiness to the upper half of his face, a glimmer in his eye and his teeth seemed to radiate even against the blinding white of the background. And I really took in the photo, and the longer I looked, the more my tension softened, and the more the image of my father as he was, as he became, as he in that moment appeared, began to soften as well. The bitter patriarch sat in my mind, began to melt and mold into what was once much more pure. And in this internal imagery, it became clear that the time for pain was gone. The time for rehashing the past was yesterday, and I began to bask in the truth of letting go of what can't be altered. And then, just as I began to remember seeing the old family photo years ago, 
Though, with me bundled up in a little sweater just next to my snow-stricken parents, I heard my father's voice. My ears are ready to receive my apology whenever your tongue is recovered. Suddenly, my reverie collapsed, and my eyes, now bloodshot in my mind, though I had no way of observing them in that moment myself, locked to his decrepit irises. An apology? I spoke in forced hesitancy. As he pulled his face back away from the fire after turning the strange egg-like thing again to expose another side of its raw surface to the flame, he looked at me for just a moment, one eyebrow raised, and then turned back to his thing. A cigarette was suddenly hanging from my lips, and I brought a lighter up to torch its end. I inhaled deeply, and said, Now what kind of fucking apology would that be? Before exhaling strong and straight into his face. To my surprise, he began to cough extraordinarily violently, and dropped the chain from his left hand to grab his chest. The large egg thing fell into the fire with a loud crunch, and it began to char very quickly around its edge. Though I smiled and laughed at the amusing sight, on the exhale, I had noticed it wasn't a cigarette at all, but someone had replaced its contents with Earl Grey tea leaves and chamomile. I threw the smoke to my right, straight out of the window. Hearing a splash, I looked over, and saw that it had landed in another water well I hadn't noticed before, just outside of this other window. My head was turned back over when my father stood up with a ferocity strong enough to slam the stool behind his calves against the wall, smashing it to bits. God damn you, son! And he ran outside to the water well I had spotted earlier and quickly ran back inside with a tin bucket half filled with muddy water that he splashed onto the fire that had been burning up whatever that thing was to an intense degree. Once the steam cleared, the large egg appeared as one large, crackled chunk of coal. My father grabbed a metal tool from beside the fireplace and lightly poked the object, which cracked it immediately in half, which itself caused the entire thing to crumble to dust in a matter of seconds. A shriek I found genuinely disturbing belted from my dad's throat, and he dove towards and into the fireplace, digging through the ashes like it was snow. And then he stopped, with a significant exhale. Oh, thank you, Jehovah, thank you, Lord, and the blessings you've promised. And he lumbered back up onto his legs, now holding what appeared to be a small to regular-sized chicken egg, though entirely blackened with char. Praise be to Jehovah, he said as he sat down onto the stool, I thought I had a memory of him breaking just moments before, and the fire was roaring back in the fireplace as well. We sat in silence for a while, me staring between him, his ache, and the fireplace, and him still trying to catch his breath as he stared deeply into his possession. After a long while, long enough for the strange brightness of the outside sky to dim to a deep, dark purple. 
He spoke. It's not as easy as it seems, you know. I looked up to see his eyes had not moved from the charred egg. I didn't move as I studied him. The feeling in the air was that any response from me would be met with something unpreferred. My father could be a tricky man. I nodded lightly and looked back out of the window to my right. Are you hearing me, son? He asked sharply. I turned my head back around and gave him my empty gaze, which he returned with his own. I could tell he could tell I wasn't agreeable, and I saw the light, whatever light there was, sink. He gazed back to the egg, sighed, and stood up. He walked back over to the kitchen and took a large Tupperware container out from the inside door, walking back over and sitting back down on his stool. Opening the Tupperware, the stench of mold and moist dirt hit me, and it pretty much did appear as a tub of old mud. He dipped his finger into the viscous sludge and mixed it a little. He then sprinkled what looked like fine sand or grit into the thin soil, and mixed some more until he had reached a somewhat thicker consistency. He then grabbed a little palm full of the soil, now close to the solidity of dough, and spread it across one side of the black egg. He then hung the object from the end of an iron pole that itself hung a little metal wire egg holder, and quickly passed it in and out of the fire's flames in one steady motion, the amount of time engulfed in the flame being no more than a single second. Taking the object out, he let it cool for a moment, and then took it out, smeared the other side with dirt to now make it appear as though the egg had grown about 25% larger and changed colors from black to brown. Into the fire it went, solidifying the crust, and on and on it went until the egg now appeared as a brown ball about the size of a softball. When he was done, he rubbed his hands together over the Tupperware to roll off all the extra casing and snapped back on the lid. He slid the container under his stool. As his eyes looked up to me, he realized I had been watching him work the entire time. He stared into my eyes, and I stared into his. A slight smirk crept across his face, and after a moment, he made a quick look down to the object and then back up to me. He then brought his hand up to his face and tapped twice with his index finger just to the side of his right eye, which I knew was to tell me to watch. He then, in one swift motion, tossed the ball of dirt up and behind him, straight out of the window, straight over the yard, and straight into the water well just behind. But as it crested the well's edge, my consciousness suddenly left the relative comfort of the house and followed the dirt ball. I saw it fall, or more accurately, experienced it falling, as though I had become this ball of dirt myself, for seconds upon seconds, minutes upon minutes, days upon days, and weeks upon weeks. 
the descent seemed to last an eternity. There were times when all notions of time would cease, and an even more peculiar sensation of floating would envelop me for unknowable stretches of immeasurable time. And then suddenly, so suddenly it seemed to shock me awake from a timeless trance, I witnessed and felt the ball of dirt smash against something very hard and metal, silvery and manufactured. And then the felt imagery became translucent, and in another second, only darkness. I floated in this blackness for moments, before noticing a new feeling begin to return. And then suddenly, I opened my eyes. I was laid out on the couch, the sun pouring in from the window across from my gaze. The intensity burned my eyes and I squinted and turned away for relief. Opening them again, I found the coffee table before me. There was no glass of water to be seen. Seven. Truth. I stared at the trees ahead of me for quite some time before the thin path between became evident. Just like in the dream, there was a little path that seemed to be free of any trees, only annoying weeds to deal with. And so, I retraced the steps I had taken the night before, this time having to deal with the muddy ground soggy from a day of hard rainfall. An unbelievable feeling of surreality continued to rise within me as I discovered intense similarity to the path I was traversing and the path I had traveled, culminating in the discovery of the same old fork in the road. This time, I chose the left-hand path without correction, and suddenly, I broke through. Before me stood the house I had seemed to visit just hours before, though looking like it had just been hit by an awful tornado of time and decay. No smoke billowed from its chimney. The stone path had either been eaten up by the unkept grass and weeds, or it was removed long ago. As I reached the front steps, the only clear feature that stood the test of time were the gorgeous bushes to each side much larger and unpruned now than in the dream, adorned with dozens upon dozens of white flowers of dizzying beauty and aroma. But I continued up the short steps to the door that no longer exists. I walked inside to see a horror show. The walls were torn open, and a large crater the size of a car sat in the middle of the living room. There was a sofa against the far wall below the windows that looked to be ravaged with rot and mildew, and the stone fireplace was simply gone, aside from two small pebbles of similar quality in the corner where it used to call home. Carefully watching my step, I noticed shoe prints following me in the thick layer of dust that coated the uncollapsed layers of the house. I looked to my left noticing the staircase I don't think was there in my dream. 
I dared not test the rotting foundation of this house in such a dangerous way. I turned my gaze forward, where it happened to look through the shadowed eeriness of the decay. Through the window to the bright sunlit day, to the stone-built water well that happened to look unchanged from its appearance last night. I quickly dashed back out of the front door and walked around the right side of the house to the back. Interestingly, the well I threw the smoke into was nowhere to be found. The well in the back was the only one still standing. I lowered my hand to the rim of the well, caressing and feeling the rough surface of the weather and time-worn stone. I looked down into the well. Though the sun was just overhead, I could see nothing but an infinite plunge into darkness. But then I noticed the metal chain, ascending up out of the well and hanging just over the opposite lip of the well, its end just barely touching the weeds. I walked around to the other edge and took hold of the chain. It suddenly appeared to me as the same chain my father had used to hold onto and roast that strange thing in my dream. The chain in my hand. I looked back over and down into the well. The abyss had not changed. I began to tug. It was clear the chain was attached to something, though I couldn't be sure due to the sheer weight of the chain itself, but I thought there was a good chance. So I began to pull with a stronger will and a quicker pace, and eventually, after minutes of work, the end of the chain ascended from the depths of the water well along with the ancient-looking tin bucket it was linked to. I pulled it over and up and out onto the grass. I sat down and peered into the metal receptacle. It didn't bring me any water, but it did bring me a gift. Inside the bucket, I found a little round object about the size of a large orange that was a deep obsidian, and though light in weight, was solid, like clay. I held it in my hand and rotated it all around, observing it from every which way. It was like a glob made of black plaster. And then, after another moment, I smashed it against the outside stone of the water well. The black material crumbled to bits, revealing on the grass below, among the gritty rubble, a little black egg, about the size of a chicken egg, just as it had appeared in the dream. My heart must have been beating a million miles a minute as I picked the object up in my fingers and brought it up to my eyes. And suddenly, I gasped. The object now close enough to see I discovered a perfectly straight and precise seam that went around the entire perimeter of the center of the object, and on one side of the seam appeared to be some kind of latch. I slowly lifted the little black latch no more than a centimeter in length and then cracked open the egg at its seam, raising the top open like a jewelry box. And there, inside the shell, I found myself staring at 
myself as I was when I was six or seven years old. There I stood, bundled up in about three layers of sweaters with oversized earmuffs on, staring with a large cheesy smile at the camera, eyes squinted shut in defense of the blinding brightness. Behind me, another piece of that same snowy mountain stood, along with my father's familiar hand on my shoulder. It was the missing piece of the photograph. It was then and there that the tears finally came, and they came with a ferocity and intensity that shook me to my core, and the entire emotional weight of the ordeal hit me like a train. And there, lying and crying in the overgrown grass and the weeds of this abandoned land, the morning passed to evening. By the time I began dusting the grass and dirt from my pant legs, the sun was beginning to set. I closed the black locket as it slid into my pocket as I headed back toward my mother's house. Luckily, it was easy to retrace my path back to the yard. As I finally made it to the manicured grass, I found my mother standing on the back porch. The moment she met my gaze, she shot up from her chair. Huey, where the hell have you been and why'd you leave your cell phone in the house? She ran over to meet me, but I continued walking towards the house, not sure how to explain. I simply assured her that I was alright, I was just on a little walk and needed to take a shower. But before that, I told her, I needed to look through the photos again. It took me a little under an hour to find it. In the third box from the top, I found the photo somehow mutilated long ago. The photo of my young mother and father in front of those beautiful blizzard-stricken mountains. And then I took out the locket. Fishing the ripped piece of photography out from the device, I lined it just to the right of the main photo of my parents. It aligned perfectly, right down to the creased rip down its side. I was in disbelief. I never did take care of the tombstone. Just as I had found the other half of the photo in the box, my mom let me know she called someone and figured it out on her own. I barely nodded in response, but I did give her a gift. Before I left to go back home, I hung up a large photo print in the living room, one of a newly found and restored photograph of a family as they were when they were strongest, a symbol in some sense of the eternal soul. With my mother's permission, I've kept the original. It sits framed, but tucked away in a storage box in my closet. And just like the truth it represents, it exists and is there waiting for me whenever I wish, whenever and forever.
A special thanks to all of my patrons and YouTube members and supporters on Anchor. You all have supported me through thick and thin, and every single one of you are a part of this thing that we call Clancy Pasta. Whether you are a current supporter, have supported me in the past, supported me far in the past, if you just watch these videos, to be quite frank, you uh, are, are a part of this thing, but especially those who have uh, gone out of their way to contribute, just thank you so much. So thank you so much to Gabriel B, Uma Manic, Jamie P, Jacob D, Tim W, Jacob S, Galaxia XP7, Michael L, Aaron C, Skylar M Morningstar, Christopher P, Tumultuous Tay, Folor, Suzanne G, Shannon M, Lydia P, Brindlebug, Ashley LR, Leia S, Ref, Home Ghost, Tara, Artin T, Goober, Angelo L, Jessica D, Vanessa, Todd B, Evan K, Miss PM, Lucy J, Monica A, Stephen W, Azuma, Christopher P, David LK, Shauna M, David L, Uma M, Chief Aslan, Eyeless Jack, Rebecca, and Frankie C. Thank you so much to all my supporters spread out across Patreon, YouTube members, and now Anchor supporters. Thank you all so, so much. And if you're a $2 and up supporter and your name wasn't on this list, I apologize. Sometimes I screw up or Patreon is kind of confusing with the, the way it lets me kind of sort supporters. So if I missed it, let me know in the comments and before I put out the next episode, I'll make sure to check it and uh, make sure to get you in. The music used in this episode was by Incompetech. The full credits are on screen and in the description or notes section. And the sound effects were from Pixabay, also royalty free. This story was written and narrated by me, which feels a little redundant to say, but in the effort of uh, totality. So yeah, just uh, just thank you all so much for listening. I appreciate you. Uh, I feel like, I don't know, I've, I've, I've said this at the end of so many videos because I haven't posted often for a long time, so I'm always apologizing for not posting often. Um, but you know, sorry for not posting often. But uh, regardless, I hope you enjoyed uh, the new story and also the, the new production style. I'll see you soon. Cheers. <laughs>